You are listening to 30 Minutes on KXCI Tucson 91.3 FM or streaming online at kxci.org. I'm Amy Amoroso and my guest today on 30 Minutes is Rebecca Tosi, internationally recognized as one of the most respected legal scholars in the field of federal Indian law and indigenous people's human rights, currently at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law as the region's professor of law with the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program, and serves as special advisor to the Provost for Diversity and Inclusion. She has published widely on the topics of sovereignty, self-determination, cultural pluralism, environmental policy, and cultural rights. Welcome, Rebecca, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be here. So I have a lot of ground to cover today. Let's start with your current position at U of A. How do you think U of A is doing regarding diversity and inclusion? What's working and what needs working on? That's a great question and it's also a huge question. So I'm delighted to acknowledge that our president, Bobby Robbins, and our acting provost, Jeff Goldberg, are unanimous in their commitment to diversity and inclusion moving forward. It is one of the paramount values, indeed, probably the first value of the university. Uh, And we just received status as a Hispanic-serving institution, which means that about a quarter of the student body is Latino. So we're very appreciative of the chance to serve in that role you know, mentoring this generation of students into the future, a very diverse cohort of students. Who gives that recognition? It's a status that the Department of Education federally um, acknowledges and it carries with it certain potentials for federal support and grant assistance. But it's really a big part of inclusion in the Southwest where so much of our K through 12 population, for example, here in Arizona is Latino. Native Americans are also a very, very important and a young population in Arizona that's growing. So we uh, really value that at the University of Arizona and believe in designing our educational mission for the student body that we serve. So based on that, one could say you're doing pretty well on diversity and inclusion. Well, there's always more that could be done, Amy, (laughs) but we are certainly doing our best and working at it. Wow, that's really exciting. Are you actively recruiting students yourself or are you working with those who do? I actively recruit students into our law program. I am a law professor, Mm -hmm. and last summer I taught in the Pre-Law Summer Institute at the University of New Mexico, which actually serves Native American students who are interested in attending law school. They're ready to go. And we recruited students out of that program as well as our other admits. So I am always recruiting. I do weekly travel to universities throughout the country, and I'm always looking for great students to bring back to the University of Arizona. How many students would you say you interact with regularly in a semester? At the University of Arizona in particular, I interact with at least a couple of hundred a year. Nationally, the numbers are much higher. Some of my audiences are 500 to 1,000 students at various universities, and I always spend time and talk to them after the program and really encourage them to think about careers in the law. So you're traveling around the country speaking, yes, lecturing yes. to hundreds of people. Yes, absolutely, every year. Do you get nervous when you do that? 
there's always a level of anticipation, but I love meeting people. And I'm just, I feel very blessed to be able to do the work that I do because it brings me into contact with people that ordinarily I wouldn't be able to meet. Are you seeing students' interests trending in certain areas of law now versus five or 10 years ago? Absolutely. I think there's been a tremendous shift. When I started to teach federal Indian law, the canon was domestic law. It was that you had to be trained in domestic administrative law, constitutional law, to be able to help um, tribes actually navigate the federal system. That, of course, is still true because federal law does govern the lives of all federally recognized American Indian nations. However, international human rights law and the discourse about human rights versus the rights of domestic citizens under U.S. constitutional law has become a growing field and a very exciting part of my personal research. So if you thought, for example, do we have a right to water? Well, as a constitutional law matter, no. And in fact, you see tremendous disparities in the quality of water that is available to different communities. If you remember the Flint, Michigan case Mm -hmm. in Detroit, for example. So there's no right to have a certain quality of water aside from what we might construct out of the Clean Water Act if we can enforce it. Well, as a matter of international human rights law, there is a right to water. And if you think about the way that countries can act to stop water flow from one country into another, it actually can control the terms of human survival. So it's a vitally important topic. So my research really is in that area right now, looking at food sovereignty, looking at rights to water, looking at the mechanisms that enable human survival in the frame of human rights. Their water issues generally break into two categories. There are the water adjudication cases that basically say that every Indian reservation has a reserved right of water to go with the reservation and basically accompany its growth into the future. Those have got to be adjudicated within the state water system due to various technicalities of federal law that have been litigated over time. But you might imagine that some of those reservations, the priority dates are very old, right? Mm -hmm. Because the reservations were created in the late 19th century. So they have a, a significant entitlement to water that sometimes causes, you know, certain feelings among current users that maybe they've got too much or they're not going to be able to use it. So there's that constellation of issues. The other set of issues is around water quality. Federally recognized Indian tribes have the right to basically develop their own water quality standards. And there was litigation around whether or not it was permissible to have that idea that, hey, we ingest the water for sacred ceremonial use. We need a quality consistent with that. And some states said, well, that's ridiculous. That's a religious belief, you know, as long as it's clean enough to, you know, basically wash your car, that should be sufficient. And the cases came out in favor of the tribe's sovereign right to set their own water quality standards according to their criteria. Moving on to your extensive experience and knowledge in tribal law, I read that your research interests include tribal self-determination within the U.S. constitutional framework, 
environmental justice for tribal communities, and intellectual property rights to cultural resources. But first, can you help me and our listeners understand some basics like what is tribal sovereignty, what is it, and why is it important? Absolutely. This is a basic issue that, in fact, every citizen in the country should know that we have three levels of sovereignty in the country. We have the federal government, we have the state governments, and we have the tribal governments. Tribal governments have inherent sovereignty, as do states, but they're not part of the constitutional structure. They weren't parties to the Constitution. In fact, they are pre constitutional and, in fact, extra-constitutional in their governance powers. So we tend to designate that as a domestic dependent nation status under federal Indian law. And then everybody says, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What is a domestic dependent nation? And in the famous trilogy of cases, Chief Justice John Marshall of the United States Supreme Court, very early first Supreme Court justice, said, They are sovereigns in every capacity that a foreign nation is sovereign, except they have become, in fact, geographically incorporated within the sovereignty of the United States, so they're no longer foreign sovereigns, rather they're domestic sovereigns, but their sovereignty, their governance powers are from within, and that's what we mean about inherent sovereignty. It's not delegated by the federal government, not delegated by a state government. It is inherent sovereign authority. That was the basis of the Indian treaties, and there are over 500 treaties with federally recognized Indian tribes in the United States. Most of those are still valid, at least in part, although certain provisions might have been abrogated over time, they are still valid binding agreements. You only do treaties with sovereigns, sovereign nations. Right. So let's talk a little bit about a tribe's relationship to the federal government comparative to a state or a county. Absolutely. So a federal, federally recognized Indian tribe maintains its authority over a territory, which is usually a trust reservation. That reservation is not part of the state. So if I look at Tonawatham, if I look at Gila River, that is not the state of Arizona. It's within the boundary lines of the state, but jurisdictionally it is a separate territory that exists under tribal law and governance, but the federal government protects that, and that's the trust relationship. So if you go on to an Indian reservation, you basically have to adhere to tribal law. If they say no guns, you can't take a gun onto the reservation if guns are banned. And in fact, if you commit a crime that may be a federal offense, it may be a tribal offense, it might be both a federal and tribal offense very unlikely that it's going to be a state offense unless you're a non-Indian and your victim is a non-Indian and there's no tribal interest involved. So there are 555 tribes federally recognized? I believe it's up to somewhere like 567 or possibly more. There were six that were recognized in January or February of this year, so the final tally is a bit higher. 
Arizona has how many federally recognized tribes? There are 22 federally recognized tribes that have land holdings in Arizona. So the Zunis do have a land holding, even though their site of governance is in New Mexico. Ah, okay. So there are 21 tribes that actually are physically incorporated here. You are listening to 30 Minutes on KXCI Tucson 91.3 FM or streaming online at kxci.org. I'm Amy Amoroso, and my guest today on 30 Minutes is Rebecca Totsi, internationally recognized as one of the most respected legal scholars in the field of federal Indian law and indigenous people's human rights. So back to our questions regarding environmental justice and cultural resources. We've seen a lot in this administration. Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalani National Monuments open to new mining claims. The most industry-friendly EPA in modern history. President Trump signing executive order to advance the Dakota Access Pipeline. The border wall, which would have major potential effects to the Tohono O'odham Nation. Can you talk about what key environmental justice challenges you see presently and what a way forward might be? So one of the things that you pointed out was how much this administration has done to dismantle certain very important policies and structures that were set up under prior administrations, and I mean multiple administrations. So one of those was uh, an effort to get the tribes to join together in regional groups to talk about things like climate change, to talk about things like energy development, to talk about things like water management. What I have seen is less of a tendency to bring tribal governments into those major meetings where shared resources and infrastructure are discussed. And therefore, many of these uh, problems arise after the fact. So if you look at the Dakota Access Pipeline, the pipeline was over 90% complete at the time that it was going to intersect the federally protected Lake Oahe area. That's the only reason that the tribes had to be considered at all, that their their claims had to be considered. Well, how is that even a viable proposition when you're putting in a pipeline through a state and you're inviting Bismarck to the table and saying, hey, do you guys want this pipeline? What's going to do to your drinking water? And then you don't invite the local tribal communities before deciding to site the pipeline. That issue of infrastructure development, resource management, and pollution must have all of the governments at the table at the initial phase of the process. So again, human rights law gives us our discourse of what does it mean to engage tribes respectfully and gain their free prior and informed consent before taking actions that would jeopardize their resources. The domestic requirement of consultation is too late procedural and often after these important decisions have been made. So I, I fear that that is one continuing kind of crisis into the future. Let's talk about the second part, which is, I think, really embodied in the Bears Ears case. So that's a case that I've been personally very concerned about. I have been working with the Grand Canyon Trust, Native American Rights Fund. Both of those organizations have 
profound tribal constituents as well as environmental and recreational constituents, citizens who really care about having these beautiful areas for the benefit of all people here into the future. So the process that led to the designation of the Bears Ears National Monument, which was proclaimed by President Obama in December of 2016, was a lengthy, multi-year process complete with cultural mapping, involvement of multiple federal agencies and state and local governments, as well as the tribal governments. There was a huge process that went into that decision making. The ultimate area that was defined by President Obama was, of course, much smaller than the suggested area to protect all sites. But again, we have to leave room for other uses of the lands. The process that has now come to, I want to say that the intent is to dismantle the Bears Ears National Monument, but it is being challenged in federal courts, so I am not accepting that it is dismantled. But the discourse, if you look at the way that they're writing about this, they shrunk that area to a fraction of the original, I think it's less than 16% of the original area, and the protected areas are no longer contiguous. They're little spots that are disjointed, and you cannot protect cultural resources or natural resources by trying to find a little thimble of some meaningful you know, spot that can be basically taped off and you say, well, now that's a new national monument. That is not a national monument. A national monument is set forth in the Antiquities Act of 1906 after a survey is done of the land to see what the cultural resources are, to see what the the jeopardy is to those areas. Then you designate the area that is going to protect it. If you look at the adjacent lands, you are going to see the obliteration of the landscape through the new mining technologies. They basically, it's a barren, barren landscape. If you look at Bears Ears in its current, and I encourage everybody to go up there and see the profound beauty and significance of that area. But the other thing that was important about that is the first monument in history that was created to have a tribal commission composed of the culturally affiliated tribes to that area. Five of them joined together and they are written into that statute because they have the traditional knowledge of the area and that is part of what is being preserved is the current knowledge which is ancestral and over time and embodied in these federally recognized tribes. Do you want to comment on the border wall? and how it might affect the Tohono O'odham Nation. So I can frame that in the human rights discourse, Amy, because I know that you're probably talking to the elected tribal leaders of the Tohono O'odham Nation, and I wouldn't attempt to speak for them. But under human rights law, in the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, there is a provision, an article in that declaration, that says that a nation state shall protect the human rights of indigenous peoples that basically straddle the border so that part of the membership is in one country, part of the membership is in another country, which is the situation at T.O. That tribe is heavily affected by all of the attempts to defend the quote-unquote 
United States border, but the border doesn't exist for the Autumn people, right? Mm -hmm. The Autumn people belong to the lands, and they're, in a sense, bisected by an artificial political border. Mm -hmm. The human rights of the people on both sides of the border can be jeopardized in multiple ways by an ineffective handling of the various issues, environmental and cultural and political, that accompany that. So these are things that a border wall is a symbol, but it is a symbol that, in a sense, desecrates the sacred meaning of that landscape for the Autumn people who belong to the land. Backing out now more broadly, how are you seeing your U of A students affected by these current events? Our students are amazing, and I'm so proud of them. They are students who are very active in the community, in the issues, and they lend their wonderful minds and energy to a number of these issues in multiple ways. At the University of Arizona, we're very proud in the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program that we provide education about tribal law, federal Indian law, and international human rights law, which are three domains in which these issues are being featured. And our students are working at each of those levels. They are trained to do so. They are passionate about the issues. And they're also incredibly compassionate because they realize that sometimes the costs of these problems fall on people who couldn't afford to get legal representation. So a lot of the work that they do in their clinical programs is done pro bono. They do it for academic credit, but they are tremendously um, talented. So lastly, in May, Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke was at the National Tribal Energy Summit when he called for an off-ramp for taking native lands out of trust. He is quoted by saying, if tribes would have a choice of leaving Indian trust lands and becoming a corporation, tribes would take it. Do you agree with this statement? And how would this affect self-determination? So self-determination is pivotal. Self-determination is the human right of every people to determine its own destiny. And the power of sovereignty, the governance power, is what enables federally recognized tribes to do that with their lands, their members, and their profound cultural and spiritual histories over time on these lands. The idea to take lands out of trust has been around for a very long time. The Dawes Allotment Act, which basically was responsible for the loss of three quarters of tribal land, is an example in the 19th century when they said, well, why don't we just dissolve the reservations, give people a little farm, they can hold it in you know, fee, it can be taxed, it can be sold. If you don't pay your tax, you know, who wouldn't want that scheme? So lost a bunch of land there. Termination era, 1950s, another one. Let's just terminate the trust relationship. It doesn't mean we terminate the tribe. They're still, they can be a cultural entity and their members can be proud to be whatever culture they are. They're a tribal American, but they don't have the trust. So the lands were again sold and the money was distributed as my former colleague at ASU, Kevin Gover, who's now working for the National Museum as the director there of the American Indian. Basically, he was assistant secretary and he said for his tribe, that was $15,000 
per person when they dismantled all of the lands and liquidated it. $15,000 per person. Wow. Now, many of those tribes were reinstated to trust status after a brutal experiment, which no nobody has forgotten the legacy of that, except that Secretary Zinke would like to feature it as perhaps an experiment in self-determination. So I suppose there are people that might get taken with the idea that if we get rid of the paternalistic aspects of the trust, then tribes could just be successful corporations, but they tried that in Alaska. and. Many tribes chose to go back to a traditional governance modality and, again, buy up their lands. But in the Venati case, if you don't hold your lands in trust, you cannot exercise jurisdiction over those lands as a government with the legislative judicial functions. You're basically in a sea of, of state power. So I read that you serve as an appellate judge for the Fort McDowell Yavapai Nation Supreme Court and the San Carlos Apache Tribes Court of Appeals. How are tribal courts different from the federal court system, if at all? So tribal courts today are set up under the inherent sovereign authority of the tribe in most cases although there are still a handful of tribes that have the old federal courts of Indian offenses that, that basically were set up by federal agents in the 19th century to govern you know, misdemeanors and, and small civil cases on the reservation. But the vast majority of tribes have their own tribal court systems, which are much more like state courts, actually. So they adjudicate domestic relations cases and civil contract tort cases, as well as criminal cases where they have jurisdiction. So the United States Supreme Court has limited the inherent sovereign authority of federally recognized tribes to adjudicate non-Indian criminal defendants, with a small exception under the amended Violence Against Women Act for, for domestic relations offenders. So there's a tiny little exception there if you meet the standard, but for most non-Indians who go onto the reservation and commit a crime against a native person, they're gonna have to go to federal court on that crime because the tribe is not gonna be able to criminally adjudicate the defendant. I read you're of Yaqui descent. From what region? Is it Mexico or the Pascua Yaqui here in Tucson? So my father was born in Sonora, Mexico, and so he came to the United States as an adult. So my Yaqui ancestry is through my dad, and our family was one of the ones that was very heavily impacted by the policies of the Mexican government to move Yaqui people out of their traditional lands during the earlier 1900s. So part of the family got sent to the Yucatan to work on the plantations out there by force. And it wasn't until I met uh, Octaviana Trujillo and she introduced me to all of the history behind that and, and allowed me to see the records of the United States that had so much expertise in rounding up Indians and actually lent that expertise to the Mexican government along with their weapons and their trains. So I learned a lot about what had happened to my family and it was, was because of her and I have a great deal of respect for the leadership of the Pasquayaki tribe. Who were your cultural icons growing up? Who did you admire? I was so, I was so fortunate. I grew up in Los Angeles in a in an area 
right by an urban Indian center. And I will forever be grateful to them. But that was before the Yaquis were actually federally recognized. But I remember the kids at school brought me to their Indian center. And I, when I talked to them, I you know, told them who I was and what I was. And so we just had this amazing urban Indian environment. But I actually remember being so influenced by the American Indian movement leaders who came into the Indian Center to talk about what had happened at Wounded Knee and at Alcatraz. So I remember these folks are no longer with us, but Russell Means and Dennis Banks, and they brought their kids, and so I met their kids. And that was the first that I learned about treaties, about federal Indian law, and I was so young, but it moved me so much to think about that. And I remember they always said, you know, whatever you do, keep fighting for what you know is right. Even if people tell you, you know, no, you need to just get with the program and assimilate and do all these other things, they were like, don't do that. Remember the people that died so that you could be here. And I always, I always remembered that. It just seemed right to me, and that's what drove me to do what I do now. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Rebecca. It's been a real joy getting to know you more and learning a lot from you. Thank you, Amy. I have enjoyed it, too. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss these issues. You were listening to 30 Minutes on KXCI Tucson 91.3 FM or streaming online at kxci.org. And my guest today on 30 Minutes was Rebecca Tosi. Rebecca Tosi.